1962, the Guinness World Records listed Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa as having the highest insurance value for a painting assessed at $100 million. 1962. With inflation, that would place the Mona Lisa's value today at somewhere around $830 million. That's quite a painting. Some 30,000 visitors a day funnel through the Louvre, trying to get a glimpse of this painting that actually rests behind a bulletproof case, but people fighting for a clear view of such beauty and value. If you owned the Mona Lisa, would you protect her? Yeah, you would. Why? It's called value. 830 million, right? Now, I understand that the worth of something is determined by the price that is willing to be paid for it. And in this case, people see this remarkable work of art as a remarkable value. You ever think, what if someone thought I was worth that much? You ever think, what if someone treated me as having such value? I mean, wouldn't it be something if someone valued me like that? I'm really glad that you're here today. Um, I also want to welcome um, the folks who join us online every single week, um, some who are serving in the military, some who just physically cannot be here due to health reasons. Uh, sometimes it's folks who, who work on Sundays and therefore you join us every week. I just want to welcome you guys. I'm glad that everybody's here because we are just in the second week of a title series called more. More. Now, this is so good. I cannot tell you how much I'm enjoying digging into this thing because this is what I want us to begin to understand. Did you know that God is able to do immeasurably more? It's true. God is able to do immeasurably more. I'm telling you more than you even know how to ask for. He knows how to do immeasurably more than you even know how to imagine. But the way that he does that, we're told, is according to his power. That's the power button in the middle of more. It's according to his power that is at work within us. Now the question is, what in the world does that mean? Well, that's what this series is about. And again, I'm glad that you're here to walk this out with us. Let me take you back to a question. 
Why do so many of us tend to see ourselves with so little value? Why do so many of us even struggle to respond to the idea that we are worth much? And, and I think we would agree the answer is obvious. Uh, Jeff, it has to do with my flaws. It, it has to do with my failures. It has to do with my scars. This is why. So I want us to think back to the Mona Lisa, and I want you to join me in a little journey. All right, we're gonna imagine, are you okay with this, that we are in Paris this morning? Everybody good with Paris? You okay with that? We are in Paris, and we are visiting the Louvre. And we are among the 30,000 who, who filter through there every day. We are walking down the hallway. The excitement is building. The anticipation is building because we are about to lay eyes on the Mona Lisa. But as we turn the corner, this is what we see. You would be shocked. You would be shocked. Now, not just because Hugh Jackman's Wolverine is there in the flesh. That would be a little freaky, right? But also because this work of art has been desecrated. Something so valuable, scarred. And isn't it the case that if we ask the question, why don't we feel valuable, our, our response would often be, Jeff, this is a little more of how I feel. This is, this is a little more of how I might would describe myself. Well, you know what? There's a reason that we feel that way. And the Bible is really, really clear about painting that picture for us. Let me show you what I mean. We have arrived in Ephesians chapter two. We're working our way through the book of Ephesians, kind of taking a look at a, at a part of each chapter each week. And this is what it says in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, that might help us understand why we feel like we do. As for you, Paul says. Now Paul is the writer of this letter to a church that meets in a place called Ephesus. That's why it's called Ephesians. So as for you, you were dead, dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Ruler of the kingdom of the air is one of those phrases that used in the Bible sometimes to describe the enemy who is Satan. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Here's what Paul says. He says, I'm just reminding you, you are made in the image of God. You were made to reflect the greatness of God. You were made to know God. You were made to love God. But you know what we all did? We rebelled. We rebelled against the very one who gave us life. It's called sin. We chose to follow not God, but we chose to follow the one who opposes God. 
We choose to live for ourselves, we disobey God, and as a result, we experience the scars of such decisions. Paul says we are dead spiritually. Not sick, not weak, we are dead spiritually. We are not connected to God. We cannot see the things of God. In fact, we deserve the wrath of God. And you know what the Bible says? We are without excuse in this. We're good at making excuses, but when it comes to this fact, the Bible says we are without excuse. Here's what it says in Romans chapter one, verse 20. It says, for since the creation of the world, that's, that's pretty far back, right? Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. He, he says, we, we have no excuse because we, we know about God's power. We, we have no excuse because from the beginning, God has made it clear. And we understand this, he says, from what has been made. Those four words in our English language actually make up just one Greek word. It is often in the case when you're translating from one language to another. It is one Greek word, what has been made, poema. Poema. And the word that Paul is using here is, is this, this idea of a work of masterful creativity. A work of art. Now, when we see the word poema, what, what, what English word do you think we tend to get from that? Poem. That's where we get our word poem. So you, you think art, you think creativity. That's what Paul is saying here, here's the picture. All that we can see, all that we can hear, all that we can touch, all that we can taste, all that we can smell in this universe is like reading God's creative masterpiece, this epic poem of God declaring how powerful he is. I mean, Homer and Dante and Milton and, and Spencer, they are masterful poets, but when our God the great creator, when he imagines, his images come into real existence. They are living, they are active, they are multidimensional. And God says from the very beginning, when you see the masterpieces that I have created, right? I have had the privilege of seeing in my right, 50 plus years some stunning sunsets. There have been moments I could take you back to from mountains to islands, moments of just stunning sunsets that just leave you breathless. I, I can attest to the fact that I, I've had the privilege to recognize how, how God can use an amazing different color of blue for every body of water that he seems to create, right? The, the, the Caribbean is a different blue than the Aegean. It, it is different. It is an amazing declaration of beauty, of greatness, of the power of God. 
The psalmist even says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. God is the great artist. He is revealing his greatness. But Paul reminds us we turned from him. And so now we experience the consequences of that and we are without excuse. And so this tragedy within us all exists where even though we are dead spiritually, we were meant to live in him. We were made to be loved by him, to be connected with him. We were made for that great purpose. Hopelessly, you hear the psalmist speak into this tragedy when he declares in Psalm 49, no one can redeem the soul of another or give a ransom for them. He says, no payment is ever enough. The picture is when it comes to a soul, nobody can pay a high enough price to make that right. It's too costly, it's too great. That's why sometimes I just can't hardly wait to get to these moments that I get together with you because we now stand at a place that although the psalmist had a heart like God's, he could not yet see what we can now see. We are not without hope. In our condition, we are not left alone. There is really, really good news that we gather to celebrate every single week. Do you remember what we learned from last week in Ephesians chapter 1? I'm sure you do because you always remember, right? Here's what we learned from Ephesians chapter 1. There is a power. There is a power. Here's what that power looks like. It is the power that raises the dead to life. Sounds like that could be good news. It is a power that reigns over everything. And it is a power that is revealed through the church. Were you ready for this? Because what Paul starts to unpack in Ephesians chapter 1 suddenly gets incredibly personal for you and I in Ephesians chapter 2. Dead in our sin, what's going to happen here? Verse 4. But because of his great love for us. That's a celebration place. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Do you hear it? Even though we are dead in our sin, even though we are without excuse, he says the love of God, it is great toward us. The mercy of God is rich toward us. The grace of God has saved us. Oh, praise be to our God for a power that raises the dead to life. Not done. Verse six. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Remember what we learned last week? Not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he is seated at the right hand of God. 
all things under his feet. All authority, his. We don't have to worry. Why? Because he is in charge of all things. Well, what Paul now declares is that you and I are also positionally seated with him, the one in the place of authority. This is a power of God that reigns over everything. One more, verse seven. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The power of God revealed through his kindness. What was his kindness? A cross. A cross. A cross that he did not deserve. A a cross that was not a price because of his sin. But the word is grace. The word is grace. What we did not deserve. What we did not earn. Incomparable riches of his grace In other words, what could be more valuable than this? Verse eight and nine, a couple of the most popular verses um, for many of us in terms of when we communicate to someone, how, how can you have a connection with God? This is often what we read. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Remember what the psalmist said? No one can pay a ransom for the soul of another. No one could pay a high enough price. And so God gave himself as the ransom for us all. There once was a little boy. This was back before the days of Fortnite. Who decided to build a little boat. He took a piece of wood and hour upon hour upon hour he carved from that block of wood a little boat. And then he painted it blue. He fitted it with a mast and some sails, and when he was done, he wanted to try it out. It's what boys do who build boats. And so he carried the little boat to the edge of the river, and he placed it in the water. The little boat was attached to a string, and he could let the boat out, and he sat there on the bank in the sunshine, just admiring the little boat as it smoothly sailed across the water. Until suddenly, a current, a strong current within the river catches the boat. 
and the little boy trying to hold on to the string to pull the boat back to shore, but the current is so strong that it snaps the string and the little boat goes racing downstream. The little boy is running down the, the bank of, of the, the river as fast as he can, but he can't keep up. Very soon, the, the little boat slips out of his sight, and after continuing to search all evening, it just gets too dark. And with his head down, he sadly walks back home. A few months pass until the day he's on his way home from school, and he walks by the local store where suddenly within the window he thinks he sees a familiar sight. And as he got closer, sure enough, it's his little boat. Now it's scratched now, it's dirty, all the sails have been torn, but he would recognize this boat anywhere. He made this very boat, and he, he hurries inside the store, and he, he tells the store manager, hey, that's my boat in your window. To which the, son, the, the man says to him, I, I'm, I'm sorry, son, but somebody else brought that boat in here this morning. If you want it, you're going to have to buy it. The little boy leaves the store, he goes to his home, scrounging through every sofa cushion, leaving no piggy bank unbroken, and he rushes back to the store, places the money on the counter, and he says, here it is, everything I have for my little boat. And as he walked out of the store that day, with a boat in his arms. He said, now you're twice mine. First I made you, and now I bought you. And my prayer is that every person in this place who has ever called out from your soul to the heart of God by faith, the grace that God has extended to us upon a cross and the power of a resurrection, those are the words that are spoken over every one of us today. You are twice mine. First, I made you, and now I bought you. First, I made you, and now I bought you. If you want to know if you're valuable or not, first I made you, and now I bought you. This mess that I feel in my life is the context for God's mercy. This pain that I feel in my life is the context for God's grace. This loss that I feel in my life is the context for God's love. He becomes the ransom, and he declares today, you are twice mine because I made you, and then I bought you. And the reason is because I love you. But that's not the end of it. There's more. Verse 10, Ephesians chapter 2. For we are God's handiwork 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So not only saved, not only rescued, not only brought to life, but we are God's handiwork. That's a weird word, isn't it? I mean, we don't, I don't know that we use that word a whole lot. Like, I wonder what that word means. I wonder what that word is like in the original. Well, how about if I told you that it's one little Greek word? It is the word poema. Wait a minute. We've seen that word before. Because when God said, you look into the skies and everything that you see, it is a part of my poema. When you see the sunrise or a sunset or the blues of the ocean, it is a part of my poema. Do you understand what God is declaring right here? Not only has he rescued you, not only has he made you alive, but God is declaring in this moment, you are his great work of art. You are the poem, you are the masterpiece. Tiny, insignificant, you and me, more glorious than the sun, more fascinating than a, than a constellation like Orion. Why? Because the sun, the sun does not have the ability to perceive the creator's power within its own blinding glory. But you do. You do. Orion cannot trace the mind of the one who designed it, the precision of its heavenly course, but you can. How amazing is that, that God would give you this incredible gift to be able to perceive the power and the mind of the God who made you. To you and you only is given this ability to perceive and to experience God's holy grand poema. When you hear that you are handiwork, do not think chunky seventh grade shop class project. Everybody made one of those, didn't they? No. When you hear the handiwork of God, you gotta see it like the psalmist saw it. God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. If you think that you are a boring work of prose, then you don't yet see who you are in the hands of this most amazing God. If you think that you are a boring work of art, then you are dealing with, with sin-induced uh, cataracts in the eyes of your heart. It's like trying to see a, 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 sun, a sunset and you got cataracts and it's just blurry. I think that's how so many people respond to hearing that you are the handiwork of God. You are the great poema of God. God's greatness put on display. I think that's why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter one, God, open the eyes of their heart that they can see who you are 
And then in turn, they can see who they are. Look at it again in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork. God, give us eyes that can see with more than just these physical eyes. We are God's handiwork. He, the great artist. And God's greatest masterpiece is not the sunset, nor the seas, nor the stars. The greatest masterpiece that he puts on display to reveal his greatness is you. It's you. And not only are you a work of art, but what Paul says here, Erwin McManus put it this way, we are both works of art and we are artists at work. Because not only are we God's handiwork, but check out what else it says. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not only are you a work of art, but you are also an artist at work. You are created for something here. When you read the scripture, it would appear that God has a plan for us before we were even conceived. Do you ever really let that sink in? That the psalmist would say, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them ever came to be. Jeremiah, it is declared to him, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born, I set you apart. Listen, there is nothing boring about you. The way that we often evaluate, we walk away going, my life's pretty boring. I'm telling you, if you could see with eyes like God sees, you would realize there is nothing boring about you. Nothing boring about what God's given you today. If you are bored, I feel like um, G.K. Chesterton used to say it this way. He would say, we are perishing for want of wonder, not want of wonders. And what he meant by that is just, if you actually look around this amazing world, there is wonder after wonder after wonder that exists. The problem is we all just sort of sleepwalk through it and we have lost the wonder of who the creator is that formed those things and who we are in the hands of that creator. Oh God, give us eyes that can see that we would wonder at this. God has prepared for you what he has given you to do, and nothing today is unimportant. You don't need a more wonderful calling. We just may need the strength to comprehend the wonder of the God who has called us to this life. Today, you have this priceless privilege of reading with your whole being the next verse of this great poema that God has placed in front of you while at the same time you are being a part of the poema that God is placing across this world. Man, it should change how you see who you are. This week, I saw this advertisement. It came across... um, you know how you get like eight trillion emails. Well, this is something that, that uh, came across this week. It's just an advertisement for some church growth 
company that somehow, you, you know how you just get connected to stuff and they're sending you promos. Finding and empowering church volunteers. Now, honestly, I've read stuff like that my whole life. But after studying what I've studied this week, suddenly seeing this little promo felt really weak to me. Finding and empowering church volunteers, it it sounded more like a machine, more like something mechanical than what I'm reading off the pages of, 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 of Ephesians Volunteer, I realize it's a word that we use a lot. Probably by the time we're done today, they will call, we will even have announcements. They call for more volunteers in a certain place. But I don't know about you, but volunteer sounds really empty compared to the great poema, the great masterpiece, the, the great work of art to which God has called you to be. And just, just trying to find people and put them in a spot sounds really empty compared to a God who has created not only you knew, but things for you to do before you were even born. Somehow this just kind of took all the oomph out of the whole point, I think. I want you to see that. I I want you to see that because if this is true about you and true about me, then this ought to change how we see ministry. We are not just volunteering to do something. We are being a part of the God-designed plan for our life with the privilege to touch the works of art that God has created, every little kid, every baby in that nursery, right? Every opportunity, it is different than just volunteering for a task. I am stepping into the masterpiece of all masterpieces that declares how great God is. It should change how you see your spouse. It will change how you, how, how you respond to your kids. It will change how you see your coworkers, your neighbors. Handiwork, masterpiece. That word carries with it an idea of rhythm and orderliness and beauty. <laughs> you, see, see, you would say, see, that's where the problem is. Because Jeff, like most days this last week, it, it was not rhythm, and it was not orderliness, and there were days that just don't feel real beautiful. So, if God says you are, then is he just like a you know, a doting father who is oblivious to his child's faults, right? You ever met that, you ever met that parent where they, they, they just, they, their kids, they see them as, it's like, you know, wrong, right? Is that who God is? And the answer is no. But he is your all 
knowing, all-powerful, heavenly Father. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. Who can see what you will become before you have actually become it. It is a work in progress. It does not finish overnight. The news I need to tell you is that work's gonna be going on your entire life on this earth. But in heaven, finished. In heaven, it will be easy for us to declare more, this is more. <laughs> in heaven, we will get it. In, in heaven, we'll, we'll get it. Our God, he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. But according to his power, that's where we, we will get it there. But what Paul is saying to us now is that you also need to see now it is more. Not just something for heaven, but it is now. Now, God is able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in you. And when you start to see that way, and you start to expect that way, it will change an ordinary day into something immeasurable. On Tuesday of this last week, I had lunch at the Cracker Barrel. Gotta love Cracker Barrel. I met a good friend of mine, Peter Assad. He's a pastor at the Church of Waldo, and he and I were connecting over lunch and just working on some things. And as we were there enjoying our food, I looked up just in time to catch some activity among a group of ladies there. Now, I'm telling you, I don't think that any of these ladies were under 70 years old, all right? I'm kind of guessing, but I feel pretty safe in my guess big table of these ladies who had gathered enjoying lunch, but I looked up just in time to see these ladies gather around their waitress. I'm pretty sure she could not have been a day over 25, young 20s. And I watched all these ladies, 70 plus years old, they gather around that waitress. A couple of those ladies had hands on her shoulders and one of them was praying. The waitress had her head bowed in the middle of that cracker barrel. It was like she almost didn't even care where she was. There were tears rolling down her face. And suddenly I realized, lunch just went eternal. An everyday ordinary lunch just became 
something immeasurably more. The truth is, that waitress has always been valued and always been loved by God. But on just an ordinary day, at a Cracker Barrel in Belton, a group of ladies decided to let God put the truth of his love on display. I'm gonna ask us to do something a little different as we close today. As always, I'm gonna make this promise to you. I'm not gonna embarrass anyone. Nobody's gonna be put on display. Nobody's gonna be asked to say anything, but I'm gonna ask you to move for me just a little bit. In that what I want us to do across the room is I want us to stand together and then I, I want us to move together and I want us to link together. If you'll stand with me, I want you just to kind of move together and I want you to grab a hand on either side of you today. I know it's weird, but if we all do it, it's less weird, all right? <laughs> if we all do it, it's less weird. I promise it'll be okay. I promise it'll be okay. But there's something that I want us to see today. So I'm gonna pray that God will help us to see it and then I'm gonna walk you through, all right? Dear God, will you please open the eyes of our heart? And God, will you please help us to see like you see? All right, everybody look at me. Look at me. It is not likely that you or I will ever touch the Mona Lisa. If I ever get the chance, you'll probably never see me again, right? I'll be on one of those episodes of Locked Up Abroad, right? It's like probably never gonna touch the Mona Lisa. But here's what I want you to see. Every single day that God gives you breath, you have a chance to touch the artwork of God. And I want you to think about for just a second, as you hold the hand of somebody next to you, and again, I know it's a little awkward, but here's what I want you to grasp. You right now are touching a miracle. Some of you said you've never seen one. Yeah, you have. The fingerprints that touch yours were designed by the very fingerprints of God. So here's what I want you to do for just a couple of seconds. Doesn't have to be out loud. You don't have to say anything out loud. But for a couple of seconds, I want you to I want you to take this moment and I want you to thank God 
for the masterpiece that touches both of your hands. Again, doesn't have to be out loud. You may not even know them. Doesn't really matter after what you've learned today. I want you to bow with me and just thank them for a moment for the masterpiece that they are. And as you're doing that, realize that there are two people who are thanking God for who you are as the masterpiece that he created you to be. Go ahead, just take a second and thank him. Now I want you to go ahead and ask that God would also open their eyes to see who they are as the artwork of God. Ask him. And then one more thing. Now I want you to pray for the person that you wish was standing in this room with you. That person that doesn't know, and you know they don't know. They don't know who they are created by this king. They don't know how they're loved. I want you to take a minute and I want you to pray for them right now. this way one more time. What if the world felt such a touch from the body of Christ? And what if we treated people like the masterpiece that they really are in him? Listen to me. People are fighting for a clear view of such beauty and such value and they are not supposed to have to view it from behind bulletproof glass. May the church step out of our comfort zone. May the church be willing to risk and willing to love and declare our God loves like nobody's ever loved. And the proof it's you. I love you guys. Thanks for listening to us today. Now we're going to sing We Were Made to Worship. Not just a song, but to pour out our lives to declare his greatness.